Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be really looking primarily at verse 4 today. Primarily at verse 4. This is the capstone, if you will, to this whole section. Remember, verses 1 through 4 are really the earthly requirements for the high priests. What is it? What did it take? What were the qualifications for someone that God has appointed to be a high priest over the children of Israel? And then verses 5 through 10 are going to demonstrate in reverse order the qualifications uh, and how Christ fulfills them. He's going to go back in reverse order. To, we're going to, I'm going to show you 1, 2, and 3. And then, they're going to, and then the author of Hebrews is going to show you 3, 2, and 1. He's going to go back and take those same qualifications that an earthly priest had and show you how Christ not only fulfills those, but then exceeded them as well. That's what verses 5 through 10 will be. But we need to understand, in order to really grasp what a great high priest Jesus Christ is, we need to understand what the qualifications are for an earthly high priest. And that's important, especially for the struggling congregation here. Now, again, if we had to summarize all that we've learned in the book of Hebrews so far, what would it be? Three words, Christ is better. Christ is better, right? From the very beginning, the author has been demonstrating that Christ is better what? Better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. Time and time again. And the primary reason that he's doing this is because these professing Christians have been tempted to fall back, to fall back, to apostatize, to fall back into Judaism. That they had turned away from the profession of Christ, returned to Judaism. So returning to Judaism would include what? It would include all those Old Testament rituals. It would include all those ceremonies, all those feasts, all those sacrifices, the covenant, and the priests who were instrumental in, in uh, administering all of those things. Which is why the author of Hebrews has been so adamant to demonstrate that what they have in Christ, what they're attempting to walk away from, is far superior to what they think they had in Judaism. That's his whole point here. He wants them to see that going back to the old covenant, going back under the law, would not bring them closer to God like they've been told. In fact, it's going to draw, it's going to push them further away from God. But despite his two previous warnings, there's still some very real reluctance to accept the idea that this new covenant with Jesus is far superior to the old covenant with Moses and Aaron. Now, why were they still reluctant? The answer to that question lies with how the Jews viewed the holiness of God. They had a very high view of God and his holiness, something that we've lost through these many years. But for the Jews, they understood who God was, and they understood his holiness. You see, they rightly understood that no one could come into the presence of God under their own terms. We don't get to tell God what things you should accept about us, which things you won't, which sins you should wink at, which ones you shouldn't, how, uh, you know, who should be in, who's not. See, they recognized their own sinfulness. They recognized that they needed to have their sins forgiven. 
and they needed to be forgiven by a holy and a righteous God. If they were going to come into the presence of God, they realized that their sins had to be atoned for. That had to be that had to be dealt with. What they did not understand is who was going to be the mediator for them. Because ever since they've had the law, there's been somebody in place here who has mediated between them and God. They couldn't just come up to the mountain. Remember, we look at those passages, right? Not even an animal. Then they said, don't, God said, don't even gaze at the mountain where my presence will be. Because if you do, you will surely, what? Die. So they understood the holiness of God. What they didn't understand was, who's going to mediate for us then? If you're telling us that Christ is far superior, he doesn't look like a high priest to us. We didn't see him doing any functions of the high priest. How can Christ then be the mediator between us and God? See, to the Jew, their first question would be, how could you ever come into the presence of God without a high priest? They could not fathom how that could possibly be. Who was going to administer the sacrifices that would be necessary to atone for our sins? But that's what we saw in chapter 4. Remember verses 14 through 16, which kind of began this whole section. Because there the author of Hebrews said, no, you now have a great high priest. The only person called in Scripture the great high priest is Christ. One who not only passed through the three partitions of the temple into the Holy of Holies, but the one who passed through the heavens, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, who intercedes for us, whose very name, Yeshua, God saves, Son of God, demonstrates both his humanity and his deity. One who was tempted with every human weakness and yet never yielded to sin. This new covenant has a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God. But you can understand how hundreds of years of the old covenant with the high priest as their mediator was difficult for them to just forget about, which is why, again, the author of Hebrews sets out here, beginning in verse 1, he wants to show them why Christ is superior, but to do that, he has to show them what are the qualifications for being a high priest. So let's remember what those are, just for to recall here. The first qualification in verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. The first qualification for a high priest was that they, he had to have a shared humanity with those he was representing, right? He was representing humanity. He was representing the children of God or humans. He needed to have a shared humanity. In other words, he had to be human. God could have ordained anyone to be a great high priest or to be a high priest for God's children. But notice he didn't. He didn't appoint angels to be that high priest. He didn't appoint animals or any other supernatural being to be our mediator between us and him. No, no, it had to be someone who is a partaker of the human nature, somebody who is a partaker in, in mind and body with us. And angels could not be an effective mediator for man because they did not partake of the same nature as man. They could not be a high priest. They could not be our representative in the Holy of Holies. So from the very inception of the priesthood, 
God ordained that it would be men who would represent men before God. They had to have a shared weaknesses. They had to have shared temptations. They had to have shared sufferings with those they represented. And then remember the other thing that a high priest did in verse 1 was they had to have the ability to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And remember I told you that the key function of a high priest is to do what? To mediate between man and God. And the primary way in which this was done under the old covenant was through sacrifices. And the priest was responsible for those. So we've spent some time on this previously when we looked at Leviticus 16 and the high priest's duties on the Day of Atonement. But remember, before the high priest could atone for the sins of the people, before he could do that through sacrifices, he had to do what? He had to atone for his own sins first. Then and only then could he ever represent the people of God. Why was that so necessary? Because sin is the great barrier between us and God. It's the great divider, and we are not invited into his presence until our sin is dealt with. And God has ordained with those sins that those sins would be dealt with vicariously. What does that mean? It means someone else would do something on our behalf to atone for those sins. In the Old Testament, it was who? It was the high priest who would do a sacrifice on our behalf to atone for those sins before God. And so that means that God ordained was that the high priest would have to atone for his own sins first. How? Through the shedding of blood. The scriptures say without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. After that, he would then be able to enter in the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the people of God to atone for their sins. And these sacrifices for sins were only temporary coverings for sin, which means the next time they sinned, what had to happen? Another sacrifice, right? Another one. But they pointed to a day when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. They were a picture, a shadow of what was going to happen. So the first qualification for a high priest was they had to have a shared humanity with God's people. Secondly, we saw that in verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses, or weakness. And verse 3, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. The next qualification we see for a high priest is that he must deal gently with others. Specifically, the text tells us the high priest is to deal gently with whom? The ignorant and the misguided. Now, the word here for deal gently is in the Greek is metropathio. Pathio or pathos is probably where you would know that, right? Which means, which means a passion or an emotion. He's to deal gently here, which means to, he had to have control over his emotions. He was to have compassion for the mistakes as people came to him and shared with him their struggle in their walk before God. The idea here is that the priest would not let his emotions rule his response to hearing and interceding for God's people. That as God's people would come to him, that the high priest would have a sincere compassion for those who were hurting or struggling in their walk. 
that he wouldn't just say, oh my goodness, again, again, the sin, again, again. But instead we'd be grieved by that. Oh, my dear brother, my dear sister, you're really struggling here. Let me come alongside you. Let me deal gently with you and show you how God can give you freedom over that. In other words, he would temper his response. He would deal gently with them as they are seeking guidance for the sins in their life. Now, why is that important? Because remember, the primary function of the high priest is to mediate between man and God. So the high priest has to be compassionate for God's people. He has to cry out to God. He has to plead with God through prayer and supplication and sacrifice on behalf of man. I told you last week, that's what your elders do. You probably don't even realize how much prayer they spend over you. Each and every one of you here. It's a daily function for the elders of the church to pray for you. How can he do that if he doesn't have sincere compassion for those that God has called him to represent? The answer is he cannot. And that's why it's such an essential qualification. Not only must he have shared humanity, but he must have sincere compassion. That's the second qualification. He must have sincere compassion. Is this just something that you're born with? Are you just born more compassionate than somebody else? Can I cultivate this compassion on my own? Can I drum up some compassion if I don't feel like I'm a very compassionate person? Actually, the text in verse 2 tells us that this sincere compassion is not something that we drum up. It's not something we cultivate on our own. But what? It's rooted in the understanding that the high priest himself is beset with weaknesses. A person who is not compassionate could care less about your pain. Because your struggles are merely an interruption to the things that I think are important in my day if I'm, in, if I'm not compassionate. There's no sense of compassion for their fellow believer because your struggles impede on the things in life at the most ill-opportune times, incidentally. Don't they? I don't know if you knew this or not, but most emergencies don't happen between 8 and 5, Monday through Friday. They happen at all hours of the night, all days of the week. This is why the high priest had to be a human being. He had to have a shared humanity. And as I stated before, he must have his own struggles with sin. He must have his own battles with temptations. He must have his own sense of grief, his own sense of loss and anger and bitterness and loneliness must know what it's like. And knowing what it's like is essential for the high priest to intercede on behalf of you before God. Because as a fellow human being, he does know exactly what it's like to deal with those struggles. This then gives him the reference to draw from, to deal gently, to deal compassionately with the other children of God who are struggling in their own sin as well. That's why the church is so important, beloved. 
because we're not a museum of righteous relics. We are a hospital for broken people who are all at different stages of their journey, who come alongside one another, who dig deep and edify each other through the preaching and teaching of God's word, who take the gifts that God has given us. Those gifts are not for us. They're for each other. And we come alongside each other and we bear each other's burdens and we cry out to God on each other's behalf. That's how God, that's why God created the church. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not an individual thing. It's always done in community. It always has from the very beginning of the church. The church the word ecclesia itself means called out once. It's, it's always in a group. It's never singular. So what kind of people are, uh, what kind of struggling people is the author talking about? Remember, he has two groups here. They are the ignorant and the misguided, which do, they sound kind of harsh and cruel, don't they? But those are actually two categories of sins in the Old Testament. Sins born out of ignorance is the first category. They are unintentional sins. But unintentional sins are not just sins that you didn't know about. They also include sins where we acted rashly or out of anger or out of passion for something. They include sins that happen as a result of finally yielding to a temptation. All of those sins would be considered ignorant or unintentional. And of the unintentional sins, there are two types of sacrifices given to account for them. There were the unintentional sins that you're aware of that you've committed, where you spoke harshly, where you dealt improperly, where you yielded to a temptation. You're aware of it. And for all of the unintentional sins that you're aware of and truly repentant of, for those sins, God commanded that there be a sacrifice made for those. Now, for the unintentional sins that you're not even aware that you committed, and there are plenty of those, that's why God had the Day of Atonement. Just in case you've been sinning all along and weren't even aware of it, he had the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That was to cover all of those unintentional sins that you were not aware of. And that included the priest himself. The other word used in verse 2 is misguided. That word has been translated several different ways. Some of you have it going astray. Some of you have it out of the way. My translation has misguided. The word literally means to be deceived from a belief or to be deceived from taking a proper action. This is the second kind of sin. This is a willful choice to sin sometimes called presumptive sin in the Old Testament. And for this type of sin, I remind you, there's no sacrifice that can be given. There's no sacrifice to be given at all. <coughs> no sacrifice existed for rebellious, disobedient, willful choice by man against God under the law. And incidentally, there is none today either. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. 
again, we touched on this briefly last week. I'm going to come back to it again make sure we understand that because this is all laying the foundation for why Christ is better. We need to get this. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Remember, he was talking about them missing the rest, right? Missing this rest. Why did they miss it? Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, what? An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There's no provision under the Old Testament. There's none under the New Testament for rejecting the offer of salvation from God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord looks at that as an intentional apostasy, an intentional falling away, willfully choosing to ignore the gospel, willfully choosing to fall away from the truth of God's word. Intentionally falling away from God by rejecting the gospel. Why? Because when you do that, you're not just rejecting the gospel. You're rejecting God. Only unintentional sins that are repented of can be covered by sacrifice. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. Here he goes on and he's talking about this person who's in continual sin, right? Verse 26, for if we go on sinning, how? Willfully, that's of your own volition, choosing to stay in your sin, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Look at that. Here, the idea is a lifestyle of habitual sinning while claiming to be followers of Christ. And these are not isolated, repented sins like we talked about earlier. These are premeded, habitual sins where the professing believer, he does them or she does them without repentance. Lord, I know I'm not supposed to do this. Lord, I know I've been told not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because that's what I want to do. And their habitual sin is a deliberate rejection of Christ. And I don't care what their reasoning is. That's what's really going on. It's not a lack of knowledge, is it? It's a willful choice to reject to reject God and remain in, in their sin unrepentantly. I told you last week that that reminds me of Judas Iscariot, right? Judas Iscariot was not a lack of knowledge, was it? He traveled daily with Christ for three years. He heard all the same stuff that all the other disciples did. He was there. He saw God move in mighty ways. He heard the same messages again and again. He was there. And yet, he had an evil, unbelieving heart. He willfully rejected God. There's no sacrifice that can atone for the sin of continually rejecting Christ. For by their willful, unrepentant, misguided choice, they reject the only sin, the only sacrifice, I should say, that can atone for the sin of rejecting God. There's only one sacrifice that does that. 
But let me add this before we move on. That any sin could become an unintentional sin if the sinner would just repent. If they would just cry out to God and repent. And once that sinner was repentant, then the priest was called to deal gently and compassionately, knowing that he too was a man of weakness. It was the priest acting as a mediator between God and man that could lead the way back to God for the repentant sinner, whether it was unintentional or intentional. But repentance was the key. So we've seen that the high priest's first qualification was to be a human. They had to have a shared humanity. Secondly, the high priest must have a sincere compassion. Where did that compassion come from? It comes, it's rooted in their own weaknesses. So that they can help us intercede on behalf. Now we want to get to our third qualification. That's in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. And no one takes this honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. The, her, the third qualification is that the high priest not only had to have a shared humanity, not only had to have a sincere compassion, but number three, had to be supernaturally selected. Supernaturally selected. All the priests were divinely appointed. Notice that. It even says in our text, just like Aaron. The Greek word for appointed here is passive, which means I don't appoint myself. Somebody else has to appoint me. Somebody acts upon me. In this case, the one who acted upon the priest and gave them the office of the priesthood was whom? God. God is the one who appointed the priesthood. God is the one. There's no democratic election. There's no self-appointing. The only way to become a priest was through supernatural selection by God. We'll keep your place in Hebrews and turn back to Exodus, if you would. Second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus 28. Exodus 28. Again, remember how the priesthood began. Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to whom? God says, to me. God is appointing the priesthood for them to minister to him. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Verse 3, you shall speak to all the skilled persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, to set him apart, that he may minister as a priest to me, God says. The priest, especially the high priest, would have a deep sense of humility. It's not a career for them. It's not a career choice for them. It's a calling. God has called them. In other words, you don't put yourself into that ministry. God does. It starts with a call. I told you last week, Aaron didn't apply for the ministry. He didn't write an excellent resume. He didn't win priest of the year. He didn't set the record for the most sacrifices. No true priest of God would ever think of elevating themselves to a position that only God could appoint them to. 
He needed to be called by God just like Aaron was. In fact, when others did try to assume the position of a priest without God's supernatural selection, the results were disastrous. Look at Numbers, Leviticus, you're in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 16. Let me just remind you what happens when somebody decided, God, we're not sure that we want the person that you've called over here, right? Well, you know, I kind of like that job. I think we could do that as well. I think we could do that. Why is he getting all this attention? Look at Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> Now Korah, the sons of Issar, the sons of Kohath, the sons of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, on the son of Pelath, sons of Reuben, took action. What did they do? They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel. 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. For all of the congregation are holy. We have determined that we are just as holy as you are, Moses. We are just as separated, just as consecrated as you are. We're going to point ourselves into that. We don't need to listen to you. You've gone far enough. Every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Why are you at the front there, Moses? Who appointed you? We think you appointed yourself. This sounds scary, doesn't it? Well, it is. Verse 4. Moses heard of this. Notice how he responds. How does he respond? He falls on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company. He said, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and it will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourself. Korah and all your company and put fire at them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy or separated or consecrated. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Verse 8, then Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel? Is it not enough that God has already given you a specific Role to fulfill in serving God. Is it not enough for you that he separated from the rest to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation to minister, which means to serve them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you, and you are seeking for the priesthood also. It's not enough that God has gifted you and given you this role to minister and to serve God in this specific role. No, no, no. You have self-determined that you're going to take this role upon yourself because you want it. Jump down to verse 16. Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan, put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 fire pans. Also, you and Aaron shall bring this fire pan. So they took their censer, they put fire in it, they laid incense, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. 
Then Korah assembled all the congregation against him at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Notice what Moses says next. Separate yourselves from that congregation. Separate yourself from that 250 that are rising up against the Lord. Why? That I may, the Lord says, consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces. Oh God, oh God of the spirits of the flesh. When one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? The Lord said to Moses, speak to the congregation saying, get back from around the dwellings of Korah. Step away from those who are rebelling. Get away. Jump down this here, verse 28. Moses, Lord, has sent me to do all these deeds. There's none of my doing. If these men die the death of all men, if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have sinned. And notice that. That's exactly what happened. The Lord opened up the earth and swallowed them all. Every single one. God showed the rebels and all of Israel, for that matter, that he had appointed Moses and Aaron by causing the ground to open, swallowing the rebels and their households. And when some of the congregation grumbled about it, 14,000 more people died. It's amazing to me that the bronze censers that they were using, since they were offered to the Lord as something holy and consecrated, were then pounded out flat and put on the altar as a reminder of who God had appointed to be his priest and that you cannot determine your own way to come into the presence of God. You cannot determine yourself what role you'll play. God has equipped you all, myself included, for a very specific purpose. That's what he wants to have happen. But the men and their families that tried to assume the office of priest or swallowed them up. Remember when Saul lost his kingship in 1 Samuel 13 when he tried to assume the role of a priest. Do you remember that? He got tired of waiting for Samuel. He said, ah, I'll go ahead and just make the sacrifice myself. Remember what happened to him? Lost his kingdom. How about 2 Chronicles 26 when King Uzziah, when he burned incense in the temple, which only a priest could do. Do you remember what happened? He had leprosy. From that day forward until the day he died, he was cut off from his people because he had leprosy. The office of the priest is supernatural selection. Now, how does that apply to us? Beloved, i got to tell you, there are many people who are in the ministry today because they like the things that surround it. They like the respect of it. They like the audience. They like the power. And some of these people force their way into the ministry, even pastoral ministry. Some do that because they can't imagine how they could provide for their families if they're not a pastor. But my friends, that's not a divine calling. That's not a supernatural selection. That is someone who's determined that the only way they can make a living is through the pastorate, which would be the absolute worst reason to become a pastor. You don't want a shepherd who feels compelled to minister to you because it's the only way they can financially support their family. You want a pastor who feels they can do nothing else but answer the call of God that he's placed upon their life to serve the flock that he's given them to shepherd. There are two types of call. There's an internal call. That's where God is working on you every day, calling you into the ministry. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you can do anything else, do it. In other words, if you're not totally consumed and absolutely sure that that's what God wants you to do, then you should not be the pastor. Then there's the external call. That's where others come to you and confirm that God is calling you. You need to have both pieces. If you do not have those two things, you should not become a pastor. That does not mean that you should not serve the Lord. It means that you should serve the Lord for what he's called you to do. Not what you have self-determined that you should do. Beloved, here's what I want you to remember from these first four verses. Number one, that God has appointed high priests with certain qualifications so that they can become a mediator between God and man. And those qualifications are, number one, they had to have a shared humanity. Only someone with a human nature, a human body, could ever truly represent humanity. Number two, they have to have a sincere compassion for their fellow man, for those that God has called them to mediate for. They had to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided and lead them on a path back to God. And that sincere compassion is not something manufactured, not something contrived, but something that's rooted in their understanding and their recognition that they too have weaknesses. They too have struggles. Lastly, the high priest not only had a shared humanity and sincere compassion, but they also had to have a supernatural selection. No one can self-appoint. No one can self-promote themselves into that office without God's supernatural selection, which is the call in their life to serve him. And any attempts to do otherwise were dealt with harshly by God. And all of these precise qualifications were to demonstrate that no one dare approach God on their own terms. That God has a very specific way in which that can be done. The only way to approach God is through the way of God's choosing. What way is that? Through his appointed mediator. In the Old Testament, that mediator was the high priest with very specific ordained qualifications. But as we'll find out next week, all of them priests, all of these priests were sinners themselves. And they pointed to the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and the need for what? A perfect high priest the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And next week, we'll see how he fulfills all of those qualifications and so much more. Beloved, let me ask you this. We talked about unintentional sins and intentional sins. Ignorant and misguided. If you're here today and you are continually rejecting the gospel, if you have hardened your heart to the truth of God's word, if you have self-determined your own path to God and it's contrary to the word of God, that is an intentional sin of which there is no sacrifice. I want you to think about that because that's a decision that you're making that has eternal consequences. I would urge you today to surrender, to walk away from that, to surrender your life to Christ. Secondly, have you appointed yourself to a ministry because that's what you like? 
or that's what's easiest, or that's the one that gets the most attention. I pray that we are all serving in the areas that God has prepared for us. And he has prepared for each of us works beforehand. Not the ministries we feel are best for us personally, but the ones for which there's a need and for which God has equipped us. Well, I just ask you a series of questions. I don't know the answer to those questions for you, but I don't need to know the answer to those questions for you because you know the answer to those questions. And more importantly, God knows the answer to those questions. And so I pray, if you're here today, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You are feel that you're continually rejecting the gospel. I pray today might be the day when you would surrender it all. Quit trying to determine your own path to God. And secondly, if you're already saved, not serving currently or you're waiting to serve or trying to serve only in the areas that you want to serve instead of what is needed or what has God prepared you for. I pray that you would carefully reconsider that and step forward and serve our Lord for what he has prepared you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder from your text of these important qualifications of one who will mediate for us before you. And Lord, we're excited for next week when we see how those are all perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. How encouraging it is, Lord, to realize we have a great high priest who cares for us, who loves us, who was appointed by you to intercede for us who knows what it's like to be tempted, who knows what it's like to have human frailty and weakness, and yet, unlike us, without sin. Father, help us. We can be a wayward bunch. We can be prideful. We can try to do things our own way again and again and again, and you're so gracious in the way you deal with us. Lord, thank you for your long-suffering. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the grace that you shed abound in our lives far greater than we ever deserve. We thank you for sending your son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.